The passage today will come from Luke 19, 11 through 27. So you turn there and stand when you're there for the reading of the, God, the Word of God. It says, Now while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a dis- distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And it happened that when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know how much they had made in business. So the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. Then the second came, saying, Your mina, master, has, been, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a cloth. For I was afraid of you, because you are a strict man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, From your own mouth I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am a strict man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has, who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But then these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is the word of God. I was uh, reading uh, this text this week um, and, and preparing and, and, and praying over the passage. Um, I was struck by the uh, finality or the uh, obvious nature of the return of the nobleman. Uh, no doubt when you, the text was being read, uh, you notice and you observe uh, the return of the nobleman is uh, the thrust or the climax of the text, both his, his departure initially and his return at the end. It reminded me uh, about a time when I was in high school. Uh, When I was in high school during the summer months, uh, our parents uh, would want me and my siblings to remain busy and fruitful uh, during our time on vacation from school. And obviously that's because what most high school students do over the summer months is they go and spend their time playing video games, uh, hanging out with friends, uh, causing all kinds of chaos, not really doing much good uh, for their family, for their community, or for their uh, future. But my parents resolved that without our uh, say-so, we would would be forced to uh, undertake certain activities like doing chores around the house. 
So for instance, when my mom would leave for work in the morning, sometimes she would tell uh, my siblings and I, uh, you have this three chores, these three chores to get done uh, before I get home. And when I get home, I'm going to expect that they be done. And obviously, some of those chores are easier than others, right? Some of them take a little bit more planning and preparation. Uh, but most chores, you know, they're not expecting a lot of us. So most of those could have been done in a reasonably small period of time. Well, there was one day where my mom left in the morning after my dad had left for work already. And uh, she gave us the task. All three of the siblings were given this task. Uh, before I come home, make sure you take the chicken breast out and let it thaw. So if, when we have dinner tonight, the chicken will be ready to be cooked. Now we said, yes, 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 that's great. It's an easy chore. You know, it takes five seconds to do something like that. Not a huge task. And that was until about 4.30, when you hear my mom's car pull into the driveway, you hear the wheels stop on the asphalt, you hear the door open, and it dawns on me and my brother and my sister. Mom's coming home, and the chicken's still in the freezer. And the, the problem with that is, as, as all of you would know if you've been in this situation before, you can't thaw chicken in 20 seconds, right? From the time my mom comes from the car to the house, there's no hope for us anymore. She's coming home, and the chores were not done. In fact, the one task we were assigned was not done. So she opens the door, uh, and to the horror of my siblings, recognizes that uh, what, which the one thing she had told us to do was not done. It's the very first thing she checked for when she got home. And that reminds me a ton of this text. It, it reminds me a ton of uh, how I felt in that moment with her coming home. Uh, because what I, what I wished in that moment was that I had lived my entire day with the uh, view of her coming home at the end of the day in mind, right? I would have undertaken all my activities, all my leisure, all of my everything, uh, just with, with, a, with a view that she's actually coming home at the end of the day, and I need to remember that as I conduct business throughout the day. I can do other things, I can do whatever else uh, the day allows, but I have to make sure I do the one thing she did task me with, and uh, that's what I had forgotten to do, the one thing that she had actually assigned for me. And that's the difference here in the text, between the faithful and the unfaithful slaves, or the faithful and the unfaithful servants, uh, some live uh, keeping in mind what the master has assigned to them uh, as a stewardship, and the one who we're told is the other, the unfaithful servant, uh, we are told that he essentially lives while the master is gone without really much view of the master's return in his mind. He doesn't really live as though it's a reality uh, in his daily conduct. So this parable teaches us much about how we ought to live uh, as servants of Christ, as disciples of Christ, uh, in between the departure of Christ and his return. And so for those of us who live in that period of time, we ought to listen closely and carefully to the message of the text. So let's look again at verse 11 and see why it is that Jesus tells us these things. Verse 11, and they heard these things, uh, and as they heard these things, so these are all the parables that Jesus is telling and uh, keep in mind the last couple of weeks we've been going over the instructions he was giving to show them about what repentance looks like in the case of the blind man, in the case of Zacchaeus. And so they're hearing all of these things in the background. And as they're going through Jericho, and now we see in verse 11, Jesus proceeds to tell them a parable, an instruction about how they ought to interpret everything they see going on. And he tells them this because they're near to Jerusalem and because they supposed or they thought that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, that doesn't surprise us because any of you who've been to church for any length of time, grown up in the church, know that uh, one of the things that is, uh, is always celebrated in lieu of Good Friday is the triumphal entry on Sunday, Palm Sunday, where the Jews receive Jesus uh, as though he's going to waltz into Jerusalem and sit on the throne that day. 
or that week, that he's going to take his military triumph over the Romans in that moment in time. And his disciples think that too. His disciples are still convinced that that's how it's going to go down. And that helps us to understand why a couple of weeks ago the disciples don't get when Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, right? Because their expectation is he's going to come and ascend militarily on the throne. So he tells them this parable to to temper their expectations again, that the kingdom is not going to appear immediately before them. Rather, he says, uh, he says it this way, uh, a nobleman goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. Now, in this parable church, the nobleman is Jesus, and he is saying, hey, just to make it plain and obvious, the nobleman is going away, wink, wink, right? I'm not, I'm going away. And I'm going to receive for myself a kingdom, and then I'm going to return. And in this parable, verse 13, he calls to himself ten of his servants, and he gives them ten minas, and says to them, engage in business until I come. Well, this is a whole lot like Jesus having a set number of disciples that he uh, gives instructions to. He charges them with the task of going, therefore, and proclaiming the gospel to all nations, right? He gives them all the same task, brings them before him, and he says, do this until I come, right? Go and engage in business until I come. You can see how this parable aligns with the reality of what happens in the New Testament. But the citizens hated him. These are are others, not his servants, the people in the countryside which he's leaving. They hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now we want to pause there. That kind of sets for us the background of the text, right? Him announcing his departure. uh, And then verse 15 picks up after he returns. So there's kind of a break in time in, in between these verses. And the the parable kind of lays down some common groundwork for us uh, that we know in in the text of Scripture. One, Jesus has disciples who he uniquely tasks with the responsibility of sharing the gospel and discipling the nations, right? This is the task that he has given to them. In this parable, that task of discipling is equated to a mina. Now, uh, depending on your translation, uh, you might have a footnote that tells you roughly what a mina is worth. That would have been roughly three months' salary for someone, 100 days' worth of wages, uh, and that's if you were to work six days a week. So if you worked six days a week for 100 days, that's roughly what a mina is equivalent to in the ancient world. So this is a, a pretty good chunk of money. You might think about this as, well, this is probably a down payment on a house. This is, this is a lot of money that the, the master is entrusting to each of his servants. And he gives them each this same deposit and says, go and engage in business until I come. Gives them each the same amount, and then he's going to leave. And he's given them instructions for while he's gone, what they are to do with the money he has given to them. And that brings us to the question of the text is will the servants do what the master has told them to do or will they be unfaithful while he's gone? That's kind of the question that the text asks. And then uh, before we're able to wrestle with that much, we're told about another faction in the parable, uh, the citizen group. Uh, We might say the rebellious citizens because the nobleman who is presumably over them, a ruler or reigner over these people, when the master leaves, the citizens take about uh, letting the master know about all their displeasure at the fact that he even dares reign over them, right? So these people are rebellious against the reign of the nobleman. And when he leaves, they sent a delegation after him basically saying, don't come back. We don't want you to reign over us. Put a pin in that because that group will be dealt with at the end of the text. And so now we have the drama of the parable on the ground. Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified to depart from his servants ultimately in his ascension. And at his ascension, when he departs, he gives his disciples instructions. He says, go therefore, making disciples of all nations. 
and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, right? I will be back to come and to collect. And I will see at that moment if you are faithful or unfaithful servants. And so here is the drama of the text. Now, the disciples' desire for the master to establish the kingdom immediately, that's easy for us to understand. Because when, when we read the news, when we hear bad news about our life, when we, when we see something terrible happening in the world, uh, the desire of the Christian heart is to say, Lord, I wish that you were reigning right now. I wish that your kingdom would come right now, that all the pain, brokenness, uh, wickedness, and sin in the world would be done away with, and that all things would be finally put right. This is the desire of every disciple of the master. We always want to immunitize the kingdom, to bring it to bear in its full force tomorrow or today, if we, if we would have it. And it, it's tough for us as disciples to recognize that it's in the wisdom of God that he delays in his return. And Jesus knows that that's something we struggle with, and he knows it's something his disciples struggled with, which is why he tells his disciples, hey, just so you know, I'm going to be gone, but even though I'm gone, I am coming back. And you should live the entirety of your time between when I leave and when I return as though I am definitively coming back. That's the thrust of what he's saying here. Even when I'm gone, no matter how long I'm gone, you, have, you should live your entire lives like I'm coming back because I am coming back. That's the promise of Christ. So Jesus' inevitable return calls us to remain faithful, and it calls us to remain faithful in a number of different ways. First, we can see in the text, it, it calls us to remain faithful in spite of the adversity that we will face in the meantime. Now, this is something the text assumes is true, uh, but the text doesn't comment much on it. The citizens, uh, or the servants of the, the, the master, they live the entire time that he's gone in the presence of all those citizens who don't like the master. They live their entirety of faithful service, investing, trading, selling, doing business and commerce, in the context of a whole citizen group that doesn't like the master who they're serving. The citizens even go so far as to send a delegation telling the master they don't want him to come back. So imagine being a servant of the nobleman, being a servant of the master, and for a period of time, undefined in the text, having to engage in commerce with a bunch of citizens who know that you're the servant of this master who they don't want reigning over you, and the master has charged you to nevertheless be faithful, investing well, and stewarding the resources he's given you. We are called to live faithfully, remain faithful in our uh, service of the king, in spite of the obvious and inevitable adversity that we will face as Christians here in the world. John 15, Jesus tells us that, uh, or sorry, not John 15, uh, John 12, Jesus says, if the world hated you, remember, it hated me first, right? The world is not a fan of Jesus. And when we say the world, we don't mean every single human in the world. We are talking generally, commenting generally about the fact that the natural man, humankind in general, rebels against its king. This is Psalm 2, right? The, the rulers of the world the, stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And they, they, they think about ways in which they could cast off the reign of the king from them. And we live in a world that uh, exemplifies that, do we not? You can even think about the fact that we live right now in the month of June where that rebellion is being celebrated massively. Anywhere you do commerce, anywhere you do business, the rebellion against the ruling of the king is being cast off or attempted to be cast off. And Christians are still called to engage faithfully, even in the context of a citizen group that hates the king that we serve. 
that, that hates the very thought of the fact that we would continue to serve a king that they think is unfit to lead and to rule. And if you talk to someone who's not a believer, they will tell you, I don't think Jesus would be a good king. Even if he was really king, was really God, I wouldn't really want to worship him. This is the general heart posture of people who, who don't love the Lord. And we can understand why, because that is the, the heart of man to rebel against the ruling of Jesus. And here's what the parable tells us. The citizens uh, are, are the background, they're the context of the servant's service. They're the background in which these servants are called to be faithful. And so that's, that's exactly our context today. Uh, we, we have never, nor will Christians ever, live in a world that is perfectly utopian before the return of Christ. In fact, the constant triumph of the believer is triumph in the midst of suffering, triumph in the midst of opposition, or faithfulness, despite what the odds look like. Now, we should be under no delusion about this, because this is the constant teaching of the New Testament. Uh, the, the church goes out as wheat among tares. Uh, we go out as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, we are called to be faithful in the midst of citizens who hate the one whom we serve. This is the testimony of the New Testament. If you don't believe me on that, read the book of Acts and see how well the apostles fare with basically anyone else who's not a disciple or a converted Christian. They're thrown in prison, they're put to death, they're beaten, and they're generally scorned and looked down upon uh, because that's the attitude of the world against those who serve Christ. And the parable doesn't comment on this, notice, it just kind of assumes this as the background. We currently live in a world and in the midst of a world that is adverse against our king. Now here's the question. Uh, how do we remain faithful in that kind of a context? What does that kind of environment breed for a Christian, if not a daily resolve to need to remain faithful? The environment of hostility calls us always, every morning, every decision, every time we're at work, every time we're engaging in a conversation, uh, we are always challenged with or wrestling with the idea that we ought to remain faithful to the king. And when we remain faithful, we do so in the face of hostility. The hostility calls into question and challenges our decision to follow after Christ daily, constantly. We actually live in a world that uh, not only uh, rebels against Christ, but actually says that Christ's leadership and his dominion is one that is uh, marked by shackles and slavery and burdens too heavy to bear and one which is not worth serving. He's not a king fit to rule. He's not the kind of king you'd want to serve anyway, even if he was king. Kind of how these citizens say uh, they hate him and they say, uh, we don't even want him to be king over us. We don't want this man to reign. That is the opinion of the world today in which Christians live. And here's the hope, not to skip too far ahead in the parable, but in verse 27, the hope of those who remain faithful to the king is not that it'll be smooth sailing while he's gone, but that when he returns, our faithfulness will be vindicated. Look at verse 27. What happens to the enemies, the rebellious citizens, is they are put to death before the king so that justice would be done because he's the rightful king. They have no right to rebel against him. He is the one who is to reign. And that knowledge that the enemies of God are put to death, are defeated by the king, that does not mean that it's smooth sailing for the servants while the king's gone, but it is an affirmation, a kind of uh, warm uh, encouragement to us that 
our faithfulness will be vindicated over and against the hostility of those who rebel. That is our hope that the king will finally do justice to all those who are his enemies. Now, we must distinguish, Christian, between those who are Jesus' enemies and those who are our personal enemies. Because sometimes they're the same, but sometimes they're not the same. If you have bad blood with someone, but they don't have anything against Christ, that is not Jesus' enemy. And there are many who we would want to actually say are our friends that actually stand as enemies of Christ. We need to distinguish between the two, and we need to recognize that Jesus will have victory over those who are opposed to him. That's the hope of the Christian who is suffering. Now, in the West, we only face a small iota of the kind of suffering that Christians in the world face. And so if you were to go to, I don't know, China, and you were to tell a believer on the ground there, Jesus will finally have victory over all those who hate him and hate his rule. That is a great comfort. In the West, we think, well, how dare Jesus put someone to justice who's rebelled against him? Shouldn't he show mercy? And that's just really not the attitude of anyone else who's actually suffered under the hands of those who hate Jesus. So we ought to temper these teachings in light of the fact that we live in the Western world, not not under the kind of persecution that has been normative for Christians throughout the ages. The text also uh, encourages us to remain faithful, not just, let's say, in the context of the fact that we face adversity and hostility, but it also tells us what that faithfulness looks like while the king is gone. And here in the text, uh, if you look with me at verse 15, you get the commentary on what faithful service looks like. When he returned, that is the king, when he returned, having received for himself the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came to him saying, Lord, your mina has paid five minas more. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Pause there. These first two servants show us exactly what faithfulness looks like in the departure of the king. Uh, obedience to the command that the king has given. What the king says before he leaves, verse 13, is engage in business until I come. Right? I'm giving you this deposit. Be faithful while I'm gone. When I return, I will evaluate you based on the standard I have put before you. And so when he returns, undoubtedly, he goes to them and he says, what have you done with the deposit that I have given you? And each of the servants will be evaluated in turn. Now, the, the parable only tells us of the first two, uh, and we can just kind of assume about all the rest. All of them will be evaluated in this way. But the first two serve as exemplaries. Uh, the first one coming, has taken his uh, deposit that the king has given to him and has increased it tenfold. He's made a massive return on the deposit. Now, at this point, we need to recognize the mina is not a commentary that Jesus gives us financial wealth so that we can invest financial wealth. Notice how each of the servants are given a mina. They're given the same amount. This is different than the talents, right? The, the parables of the talents where they're given differing amounts. And then at the return of the king, he asked each of them what they did with their differing gifts. The mina is probably not a commentary on our stewardships in terms of what gifts, responsibilities we've been given. But it's probably a commentary on the one thing that every servant of the king has been given, which is the gospel to share. And this is, uh, Alistair Begg is very helpful on this. He, he observes this, that every single one of them is given the same mina, 
and asked with faithfulness. And, well, some are simply more faithful in making disciples through the gospel than other servants are. And when I say more faithful, I, I do not mean that fruitfulness equals a demonstration of faithfulness. Faithfulness simply means that you, you, make, you make that investment. You go forth and you invest it. Because the one who's given, uh, who makes 10 minas more, he's put over 10 cities, he's rewarded and said, well done, good servant. So too is the one who only makes five minas more. They're both commended for their faithfulness, right? They're both commended for the fact that they invested well. It's not a question of whether, okay, Christian, you're not going to make as many converts as John Piper will in your lifetime, so you might as well give it up now. That's not the point of the text. The point is everyone is called to be faithful over what they have been tasked with, and you leave the fruitfulness and the discipleship and the conversions up to God. You are called to share the gospel, to tell that simple truth that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners, of whom we once counted ourselves. But now that we are his, we have been made new creations, bought by the blood of Christ, resurrected to newness of life, no longer struggling with sin. And now Christ lives in us, and we simply share that truth as the good news of forgiveness, which Christ offers to all who would hear. And that's not, you don't need to go to get a seminary degree to be able to articulate that. You don't even need to graduate high school to be able to articulate that. You can just articulate that plainly and faithfully and regularly. And the fruit of it isn't up to how smart you are or how well articulated you are. It's simply up to God who is pleased to make a massive fruit out of certain small loaves or, or to take other very wise men and humble them by giving them very little fruit over the course of their lives. This is the, the wisdom of God who is in charge of the fruit that we would bear. So both the one who makes 10 minas and the one who makes five are commended as good servants. They're both commended and rewarded for their service. And this gives us a picture of what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness is not uh, some carbon copy of what everyone else does. Faithfulness is simply obedience to what the king has said before he departs. And we might say it this way, faithfulness involves taking calculated risks for the king. Uh, if you think about engaging in business, if, you're, if you get a financial profit and you need to make 10 times more profit, uh, you have to engage in some kind of calculated risk in order to make that kind of money. Uh, we might say it this way, if, if you want to convert someone to Christ, you have to take a calculated risk when you share the gospel because, well, if, if someone hates Christ enough, you could be fired from your job for doing that kind of thing. Or you could be scorned from your friend group for doing that kind of thing. Or you could be cut out of your family for doing that kind of thing. Sharing the gospel is a calculated risk that Christians take wherever they go to share it. It can lead to uh, great fruit, but it can also lead to great uh, punishment and hostility when you share it. It's a calculated risk that you take. But this is what faithfulness is marked by, the calculated risk that Christians undergo to be faithful to the command of their king to go therefore and make disciples. And now we might ask this question, well, faithfulness doesn't just mean calculated risks. Uh, how else might we describe faithfulness if not by uh, a steadfast endurance in faithfulness? Each of these servants is evaluated at the end of their service. And it's at the end of a long period of time, perhaps uh, an untold number of years, that the king returns. And faithfulness ought to always be measured in light of the fact that it's a daily, regular grind to be faithful. A faithfulness is not some one-time choice that one makes to be faithful or not to be faithful. Faithfulness is a daily pursuit. If I might give you the illustration of, uh, of a husband, 
being faithful to his wife. That faithfulness is, is vowed in the covenant of marriage, where the husband would profess that I am to be with you in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or worse, for as long as we both shall live, till death do us part, I covet with you, or I uh, make this covenant with you to be faithful. And we might ask ourselves, is that faithfulness simply the, the saying out loud of the covenant? Is that faithfulness uh, evaluated within the first week of that covenant? Or is that faithfulness best evaluated at the end of 50 years? And the, the dogged persistence of faithfulness over the course of that time. Uh, faithfulness is not a one-time choice. It is a daily pursuit. It is a daily uh, resolve to be faithful. And faithfulness to Jesus is no different Fidelity in marriage is evaluated not by a one-time moment. It's evaluated by a lifetime of marriage. Faithfulness to the king is the same. Faithfulness to the king is not uh, evaluated in some one-time moment where you simply wait for the time when, you know, you've won the NBA championship and the reporter asks you, you know, what motivates you to do this thing? And you say, I I have my hope in Jesus. That's That's like the dream of every child who grows up playing sports, that this will be our moment of faithfulness. But that's just not what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness is clocking in on time every single day, working faithfully regardless of who notices, uh, loving your children, loving your wife, loving your family regardless of how they treat you. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're recognized for that. Faithfulness looks like a dogged persistence of running after the king. And we might ask then this final question, what is it that motivates the servants to be faithful? What does God give us knowing our weakness to motivate for us our faithfulness? One, he encourages us by the obvious nature of his return. Nowhere in this text does the return of Jesus ever get challenged, right? It's just kind of, it's a plot point. He will return. When he returns, this will happen. So on the one hand, he encourages our faithfulness by telling us his return is inevitable. It's obvious. It's, it's imminent, we might say. And because of this inevitability, we are called to remain faithful. So he encourages us by a truth claim. But he also encourages us by reward. There is a reward to be had for those who are faithful to the king, such that those who are faithful and fruitful, the king will reward for their faithfulness and for their fruitfulness. Now, I don't want to press this to say that if you make, you know, so many conversions, it equates to this many cities in heaven or anything like that. The text simply tells us the king will justly reward those who have been faithful to him. And we can trust his goodness for the rest. We don't have to press in and ask, what does that reward exactly look like? But he does tell us he rewards those who are faithful to him. And that is to be put in contrast with the servant who we have not yet touched, who I will simply comment is, is not rewarded for his unfaithfulness. But the faithfulness of both of the previous servants is rewarded and is guaranteed to be rewarded by the king. So, Christian, as you struggle with faithfulness in your daily life, you can remind yourself of the fact that whether your boss sees it, uh, whether your spouse notices it, uh, whether your family cares about what you're doing in faithfulness to them or to Jesus— God sees it, he knows it, and he will reward it, and you can just trust yourself to him. It doesn't really matter if humans recognize whether or not we're faithful. It doesn't matter whether or not, you know, someone writes an article about our faithfulness or our endurance. It it simply matters whether we are or we aren't, because Jesus has eyes that search over the whole world, and he knows all things, and we can entrust ourselves to him. So what motivates our faithfulness is God's omniscience, his knowing of all things, and his inevitable return, that he will return to reward those who have been faithful to him. So Jesus' 
inevitable return. It calls us to remain faithful even though we're, we live in the midst of a world that's hostile towards him. Uh, it defines for us what faithfulness looks like. And we might say that uh, one of the last ways we could try to define faithfulness is that we are to remain faithful even when others don't remain faithful. And that's really the last point of this parable. And we see it exemplified in this other servant, this third example, who is an example of an unfaithful servant of the king. Verse 20, Then another came to him saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a cloth or in a handkerchief. I took that wonderful gift that you gave me and I, I put it in a sock and hid it under my pillow and I waited for you to get back. And here's the reasoning for the servant doing it this way. Verse 21, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man and you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, let's pause and give a, a, a consideration, a question. Is that what God is like? Is God a severe man who will punish those unduly and unjustly who are not faithful to him? We might ask the question of this nobleman. Is he the kind of person who's severe and who will take what he did not deposit and reap what he did not sow? Why does the parable not comment on that? Because uh, the, the master responds to him and says, I will condemn you with your own words and simply kind of plays as though that is true. So is the parable leaving open the possibility that the nobleman is unjust and wicked and a really a shrewd, severe person? Or have the examples of servant one and servant two who are rewarded richly and who know their king also served as counterexamples to the claim of this final servant? As one commentator says it, it is interesting that the king's responses to the first two servants and their demeanor towards him have already proven that this fear of the third servant is false. The result, and I'm quoting here, that the, serv the third servant does not know the king. He simply doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he's like. He thinks he knows. He makes claims about the king. But his claims sound an awful lot like the citizens' claims who say you're unjust and we don't want you to reign over us. Servant one, though, and servant two, who actually know their king and serve him and are rewarded accordingly, show us that the king is actually not a severe man, not reaping what he did not deposit. Uh, actually, the king, remember, deposited these minas to the servants. So it's not that he's coming to collect things that he hasn't deposited. He's actually deposited and invested these things that he's coming to collect. So God is not unjust in his judgment over any who would stand in his way. And the king is not unjust in his evaluation here. But he, he goes with the evaluation of the servant. Verse 22 I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. Right now he's quoting him. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I would have at least collected it with interest? His, his conclusion is, even if your evaluation of me is true, you still didn't live even remotely responsibly if that was to be true. And he said to those who stood by, meaning probably those who are coming with him to bring in the kingdom, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And, he's, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. And here's the commentary from Jesus hopping out of the parable. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now here's an interesting evaluation in the text. 
the king considers the third servant to not have the mina which he deposited to him. Uh, even from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Uh, that means that the third servant doesn't even have the initial deposit as, as his own. Which we might say, you, know, there's, you can go read commentaries on this in the text if you want to study it further. But there's a much debate about whether this third servant is a, a, a servant who is faithful and gets into heaven by the skin of his teeth. Or whether this is a servant who is found wanting. Like those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. There's a question in the text, and I'm not sure that I can resolve it definitively tonight. But I lean towards the fact that this third servant is, is not like the other two. Is not a faithful servant, and therefore really not rightly considered a servant at all. More rightly considered a rebel of the king disguised in the clothing of a servant, as shown by his demeanor and his heart posture towards the king and the fact that the king takes away the mina which he gave to him. All of those lead me to believe that the king is evaluating this servant like a rebellious citizen, not like a servant. So, okay, if we live in a world where we know that we're in a hostile world and we're called to remain faithful, and we know that other servants of the king might not remain faithful, might abandon the deposit which has been entrusted with them, what does our faithfulness look like in that kind of a context, knowing that others will abandon faith? Well, first we have to understand why it is that some would abandon faith. In this parable, it is a false view of the king, which the servant cites as his reason for not being faithful. So we can certainly say that is the case. There are those who would profess Christ, profess the gospel, follow after him, who don't know God or Christ well enough, and so when push comes to shove, when life gets hard, when something goes astray, they simply abandon the profession they once made because they simply don't actually know the king well. They never actually knew him, and therefore they walked away from him. We might also say that doubt is a reason for apostasy, a reason for people to walk away from the faith, uh, because the, the doubt about whether or not the king will return, it, it's a serious consideration. There are many who would say, uh, after walking away, I, I don't even know if Jesus is ever coming back, if he's real, things like that. There's a, a doubt that oversets the mind of some, and the doubt makes its inroads when, when life is hard and living faithfully is hard, and so doubt and the alternative seem easier. We might say it this way, that among the faithful servants, there's this third servant over here who's hedging his bets. He doesn't want to be seen out in the marketplace trading and investing like the other servants are. He's not going to try to act on behalf of the king, investing and depositing well. He's hedging his bets. Because if the king doesn't come back, he wants to also have an in with the citizens of this country. This is a servant who does not actually sell out to the king, believe in the king, follow the king. He's, he's putting his eggs in multiple baskets, diversifying his portfolio, so that in case the king doesn't come back, he might still have an in with the citizens, right? He might at least have a chance there. Now, this is wicked service. This is unfaithfulness, is the evaluation of the text. So what do the faithful do in the midst of this unfaithfulness? Well, much like the hostility, it calls us regularly to evaluate our decision to follow after the king or not. When we see others walk away from the faith, say, I no longer serve Jesus, I want nothing to do with God, it makes us resolve whether we're going to continue to follow after God or not. Because when we see someone else walking away, it makes us ask the question, do I still believe this? Am I still following after Jesus or not? I, I love uh, 
the examples of this that happen in, uh, in BUDS, which is the Navy SEALs kind of uh, training program for their, their new recruits. And in BUDS, uh, what they do for those who drop out is they make them ring a bell. And so there will be a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of recruits lined up, maybe having just gotten out of the cold water. And one of them will inevitably go to an uh, uh, observer, to, to one of the uh, officials, and he'll say, I want out. I want to drop. I don't want to do this anymore. And the official will say, OK, go ring that bell three times. And the other recruits are all standing there going through suffering in the cold when this, when this one who's dropped out goes and he stands and he rings the bell nice and loud three times. And everyone sees that when this person rings the bell, he gets hot chocolate, he gets a warm drink, he gets covered in a blanket, and he gets to go sit in the back of a truck. He doesn't have to freeze anymore. And all the others at that moment have to make this decision cognitively in their mind. Do we want to continue to suffer and freeze out here for the hope that awaits us in the end? Or do we want to also go ring the bell and tap out? That's what it's like when you see someone walking away from the faith. You have to regularly resolve whether you're going to continue to follow or whether you're going to go and pursue with them the, the path of least resistance, uh, a welcome, warm welcome among the citizens of this world who will warmly receive you for abandoning the king. It asks us whether we believe it or not. So then where do those who are faithful servants find their hope in the midst of all this hostility and all this apostasy? Well, this won't surprise you because I've often said these words. Uh, we find our hope uh, not in what any one person does, uh, not even in our own faithfulness or our own resolve. Uh, we find our hope in the body of Christ, which encourages us, which strengthens us, which calls us to faith even when we are faithless. Uh, we find our hope and encouragement from the word of God, which speaks truth to us even when we don't know what truths we need to hear. It encourages us when we need it. It strengthens us when we need it. Uh, we can even say we find hope in the songs that we sing as Christians, which remind us of truths which we do believe and do profess, and yet we need to sing them and proclaim them out loud so that they would get from our head into our heart. And, and we can find encouragement even in the grace of the Holy Spirit, which accompanies our hearts and preaches truth to us on a daily basis, even when we are weak and fleeting and failing. And ultimately... We can find our hope in the fact that it's not our faithfulness ultimately which saves us, but it is the faithfulness of Christ which is our righteousness. His perfect faithfulness, his perfect obedience is really the hope that we have in our faithfulness. Uh, we look at him as an example of faithfulness, the perfect example of what faithfulness looks like, and we strive onward not as those who go just at the command of their king, but who actually follow in step with what their king has already done going before them. In faithfulness to death, in faithfulness to the cross, in faithful servant to his father, he goes as an example for us. And in that, we walk not alone, but as those who simply march after the one who they follow. His faithfulness is our ultimate hope. It's our ultimate encouragement. And every saint follows after the one who has been perfectly faithful. So even if you struggle in faithfulness, Christian, uh, he will remain faithful. Uh, when we are faithless, what shall we say? He will remain faithful to us. It is that hope which encourages us. Now, I started by mentioning uh, the summer when I wish that I would have lived my entire day in light of the fact that my mom was coming home. And that moment when my mom pulled into the driveway I had this kind of flash of the whole day thinking about all the things I wish I would have done differently 
uh, in this moment when she was arriving at home. And in the 5, 10, 20 seconds it takes her to get to the door, uh, there was about a dozen things that I thought that was worthless, shouldn't have spent my time on that. I would have rather done this, that, and the other thing, knowing that she was coming home to ask me whether I did what she wanted me to do or not. And this parable serves as an example, a, a kind of seat at the table of, well, what if we were in the moment where the king had returned and was evaluating faithfulness? Wouldn't that color in how we would live in the present, having kind of a peek behind the curtain, a peek into the future of what it will be like on that day? And that's what this text does for us, even today. It reminds us that the judgment is coming, that the king is returning, and he will ask us how have we been faithful for what he has entrusted us with. And it tells us to sit in that seat and ask the question, how am I living today and tomorrow, or how might I change how I live today and tomorrow in light of the fact that he is returning and he's evaluating me on one metric. Have I been faithful to the charge which he has entrusted me with to go therefore and to make disciples? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is an encouragement to us as much as it is a rebuke to us. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and faithful and perfect, the only wise God, whom we will faithfully serve and whom we are dependent on to keep us uplifted as we struggle in service. Lord, we ask for your grace by your Holy Spirit, by your means of grace, the preached word, the encouragement of the saints, the fellowship of those who we call brothers and sisters, to uphold us in our pursuit of you, uh, even in the imperfection of that pursuit. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that you are a faithful God and that you are good to us to teach us these truths from your word so that we might be encouraged to run the race set before us. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.